Shalom, friends. This is Steve. And hey, it's been a few weeks. Yeah, no crap, you're saying. You're saying that accusingly to me. I can hear you through the internet. Hey, look, I deserve it. I want to explain all that to you here in just a second. But um, first, let me explain to you where I'm at right now and uh, where I've been the last couple of weeks. You know how you when you rent a car and it says unlimited miles on the contract, you start to wonder, don't you? I mean, doesn't that statement, unlimited miles, just get your head dizzy with possibilities? What if you just got in that car and started driving? I don't know. Maybe you're more sensible than me. Maybe that doesn't occur to you at all. It sure occurs to me. So, I decided to take them up on that offer until the end of June. That's what I'm doing, driving. I hit the East Coast last week, crossed into Canada, hit up Halifax, Quebec City, Montreal, and now I'm recording this in a Motel 6 in Hamilton, Ontario, heading west. Um, Actually, a really nice Motel 6 for a change. From here, it's across the plains and the Rockies, some backpacking, then Vancouver, then the great open road north to Alaska. 13,000 miles later, I'll drop this little Ford off and somehow convince myself to go back to normal life. We'll see how that goes. Okay, so on to the good stuff. Um, we still have two chapters left to cover in Judges, and then uh, one more podcast to try and tie everything together, which I've actually already written and just need to record those and, and then post-produce them. Here's the thing with podcasts, though, or at least with mine. Um, what I'm finding is that post-production takes a lot of time. You wouldn't think it would. Um, until you actually sit down and actually try to have some production values behind what you put out there instead of just barfing your ramblings into a microphone and hitting send. I don't really want to do that. The consequence is that podcasts can take a while to to produce and to put out and to, to be satisfied with the end product. So I figure, hey, you know what? Let's do judges right. Let's finish judges off properly when I get back from this little adventure at the end of June. Um, That doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to talk about right now. In fact, um, au contraire, as they would say in Montreal, where I was at this morning, in fact, this is a great opportunity for me to go a little bit deeper into something that I introduced to you as we went along in Judges, um, in the commentary that I've given you up until this point. And, And that topic is this, the composition of the Bible. Now, we've talked about this. We've talked about the composition of Judges in particular. And how important it is that we stop and consider uh, just who exactly was writing the book of Judges. And and who they were writing it for. Who they were talking to. And what they wanted their original audience to get out of it. Alright, I'm going to move on here in just a second. But first I'm going to take a sip of my Brooklyn Brown Ale that I brought along with me from Brooklyn Brewery. Hold on just a second. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I just drove all day. That was highly unprofessional of me. But I just had to have a sip of beer. Okay. Like I was saying, this is a great opportunity for us to carry that. That was so ridiculously unprofessional. Um, You know what? I'm not going to edit it out. We're just going to keep going. Um, We're going to carry this discussion, focus, into the larger framework. Take a step back from the Bible. And I really want us to ask objectively, um, what is this thing? What is this? If you can't hear, I'm rustling the pages of my Bible here on my desk. Well, you know, what is this in its most basic sense? Is it a book? Well, actually, no. Um, 
at least according to some highly respected scholars, is not a book. Uh, one in particular, his name is Carol Vandertorn. He's a highly published, highly respected Dutch biblical scholar. Um, and not according to him, nor according to um, Professor Daniel Fleming, who uh, teaches Old Testament at New York University, the NYU. He recently spoke at Denver Seminary, uh, spoke to my Old Testament theology class. I've had the privilege of meeting this individual. Neither of these scholars think that we should be talking about the Old Testament or the Bible as a whole as a book. Um, Let me reiterate what they're contending, because it may not line up with the way that you've understood the Bible. So it's not really a book. Uh, So why are we saying that? Well, first of all, because it's edited. You understand what I mean when I say that it's edited? It's a compilation of different works, right? The Bible is not written by a single author. Um, nor did the vast majority of the authors who wrote the portions of Scripture ever meet. These guys, and maybe girls, didn't know one another. Okay, and, and I'm fully aware at this point that there are certain groups who will already be objecting to this idea, saying something like, well, the Bible does have one author. God inspired the Bible. Okay. But then let's make that distinction. Let's make a distinction here. One being, if God inspired the Bible, does that mean he wrote the Bible? What does it really mean for God to inspire this collection of writings? Does that process leave room for individual authors and their personalities to come through in the writing? Um, does it leave room for their own agendas to come through? Or, or maybe more troubling than that even, does divine inspiration of a portion of scripture leave room for an author's personal opinion, or even error in thinking. What's the distinction, if you believe there is one, between God inspiring a portion of Scripture and God writing a portion of Scripture? It's not a question we're really going to be able to explore fully in this podcast, in this brief few moments that I have with you, but I want to at least plant the seed of that question in your mind as we move forward, so that you can begin to wrestle with that question if you haven't already been wrestling with it. If we accept that the Bible came from somewhere and didn't just drop out of the sky in the King James English format, leather-bound in 1611 AD, which unfortunately is not a given with some folks, okay, but if we accept that that's not the way it happened, then we have to open ourselves up to the process over hundreds and hundreds of years of the Bible taking shape um, through this process which the scripture came to us in its current format. Okay, so it's edited. Groups of people over a long time compile these writings into a collection or a group of collections. The Old Testament writings would have been mostly scrolls, um, which is one of the reasons why calling the Bible a book creates kind of a false impression. So think about it. What's the difference between a book and a scroll? Well, remember when they found the, the early copies of Isaiah and the Old Testament at Qumran. They didn't call them the Dead Sea books. What are they called? The Dead Sea Scrolls. These were parchments that were rolled up in clay jars, and they were stashed in caves um, down by the Dead Sea. That's one of the reasons why they were preserved so well, is the very low humidity, the desert environment. Books, like we have today, are usually bound on one side, And you can pretty much flip to any part of the manuscript at will. 
like maybe you can hear me doing right now. Flip to wherever you want. But a scroll isn't like that. You, you have to un picture a scroll. You have to unroll the entire work from one side to the other until you reach the passage of interest. It might be in the middle. It takes a long time to get there. It's not as easily referenced, right? Scrolls are hard to copy. They're very time-consuming to copy. And, and then you have to store them somewhere safe from the elements. Now, I owe this particular insight to Daniel Fleming at NYU that the scrolls contain portions of scripture, like Judges or Isaiah, that, that they shouldn't be called books either. So we could call it the Book of Judges, which I've done many times, or the Book of Joshua, or the Book of Deuteronomy. But is it really right to call those books? Just as maybe calling the entire Bible a book is misleading, well, maybe so is referring to portions of the scripture as books. Book of Jeremiah, the Book of Psalms. These were never books, okay? The New Testament books, for example. These were almost exclusively letters, personal correspondence. The Gospels, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, these are all somebody's mail. <laughs> if you think about it that way, these, this is somebody's mail from one person to another, or for, from Paul to a, a community, to a church, or to a group of churches. Um, this is personal correspondence, not, not a book. Okay, right, so, so what? Well, let's briefly touch on another aspect of the writings contained in Scripture. They're different types of literature, aren't they? Poetry. Poetic prose, like the Psalms or Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Legal material, law codes, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What we might call mythic divine histories, similar to Canaanite Mesopotamian histories, is found in Genesis and Exodus. The prophetic voice found in the major and minor prophets. Eyewitness accounts found in the Gospels and Acts, personal correspondence found in Paul's letters. Vastly different types of literature, you see. You understand this. And they're collected and they're arranged over time into a single volume, our Bible. And in this sense, the Bible is more like an intentional compilation of various materials spread out over a long period of time that describe the worship of Yahweh and its evolution and its underpinnings in society and culture, how the people of Israel and later Gentiles interact with Yahweh and understand Yahweh. And think about that statement in the context of Christ. One of the things that Christ claims to do on earth is to reveal Yahweh, or the Father, to the people in a more complete, coherent, and final way. This is why the Old Testament literacy is so critical to our understanding of Christ and what Christ was trying to teach us. Christ uses these Old Testament writings, the law codes, the prophets, the poetry, the mythic histories, as background to how he explains Yahweh's role in the lives of the people he ministers to. And Paul does the same. He puts Christ in the context of the Old Testament worship of Yahweh. Okay, one more point. And we could go into this way more, of course, but my intention when I began this podcast was to go for like five minutes, um, and we're like double that already. So, okay, the Bible has always, is always best understood as heavily interactive with the cultures that existed at the time a particular passage was written. And I want to say that again. The Bible is always best understood 
as heavily interactive with the cultures that existed at the time a particular passage was written. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, let's just take a couple quick examples. The law in Leviticus, and and especially in Deuteronomy, was modeled after 2nd millennium B.C. Hittite law codes. The Hittites were a people in southern Turkey. They had an empire, um, 1400s, 1300s B.C. In fact, you can take huge chunks of the law in Deuteronomy and put it side by side with the Hittite treaties and the law codes from them. And they line up almost line for line sometimes. It's very obvious that whoever it was, the the editor or the authors who wrote the book of Deuteronomy, were using a Hittite law code as as a model. Now, of course, the content is specific to Yahweh and his people, instead of the Hittites and some other nation, as would have been the case in the original text. So the more that we understand about 2nd millennium Canaanite culture, Hittite culture, Mesopotamian culture in general, even Egyptian culture, um, the more that we understand about those, the more we will understand the earliest portions of the Old Testament. And, okay, take it a few steps further, the more we understand about these ancient cultures, the more we will understand Christ and what he has to say about Yahweh. Let's talk about Joshua and Judges for a second. Um, let's refer to them not as books of the Bible, but as passages or scrolls that were later incorporated into the corpus, into the collection. Joshua and Judges, in particular, show lots of signs of editing many different authors over a period of time, contributing to the stories of the conquest of the land of Canaan, and then, of course, what we read in Judges later on, the breakdown of early Israelite society and the degradation of the religious system of Yahweh worship prior to the monarchy of Saul and David. That's why in Judges you keep seeing that phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. We see that over and over. This is written prior to the monarchy. But obviously somebody who had a hand in editing or writing the book of Judges knew that there was a monarchy coming. Joshua, the book of Joshua, or the scroll of Joshua to be more precise, probably wasn't written by just one person. Judges probably wasn't written by just one person. Now, we don't know that for sure. People debate it. But the question we should immediately be asking ourselves is, does it matter? In order for the material to be inspired by God, right, if that's the direction you're understanding the text from, why does it have to be from only one author? Why Why couldn't it have been compiled over a period of years or added to later? Um, This is another one of those questions, right? Similar to the one that I posed to you earlier. I don't necessarily think we need to answer it today, but I'd like for you to at least be thinking about it. The point of this now not-so-short podcast is to just reiterate a few key items from our study of Judges on what the Bible really is and how we understand it. And hopefully these ideas are helpful to you. Um, I really have no way of knowing if these are ideas you've been exposed to before if this is all more or less obvious to you, or if these things are really going to rock your confidence in the scriptures, which I hope it's not the latter. Um, I really don't think it needs to be the latter. Um, I think we can be perfectly confident in the authority of scripture and still recognize um, the richness of its authorship. 
Um, I do think it's important, though, for us as Christians to understand what it is we're handling and to wrestle with some difficult questions about the material, about the scriptures themselves, and, and not just to sort of dismiss it as saying, well, it was inspired by God and sort of leaving it there. It's like, okay, well, sure, but what does that mean? And what did that look like through history? What can we kind of piece back together about that process? And it, so listen, as always, right, I've got a contact form on my webpage, sdgriffin.com. Um, please use that. Um, let me know if you have specific questions about anything that we've talked about today. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely get back with you on that. Like I said, I really don't know where what your comfort level with this material um, is. Okay, so we could go on and on, but I think this is plenty for now. Um, I'm going to sign off now from Ontario and um, wish me Godspeed as I aim for Alaska in uh, a couple short weeks. Shalom.